Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. Gentlemen, how are we doing? How was your weekend? By the time uh, everyone's listening to this, I'm going to be in Arizona. So I am doing phenomenal right now, actually. I- I'm quite excited. I'm ready to go. Uh, I'm ready for some warm weather. And most importantly, ready for some White Sox baseball in a few days. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm doing all right, but mostly just excited. And that's kind of that point of spring training where the optimism tends to take over a little bit. And you start to think, oh, what if everything does go right? And what if all the players do hit their ceiling? So I'm ready for the actual games to start to just kind of snap me out of that. I've been drinking the Kool-Aid for a few weeks now, uh, so I completely <laughs> get that one. <laughs> yeah, I think I speak for everybody. I think we speak for everybody when we say we're all just kind of excited for the season to get started and really get really get into it. Um, we have quite a bit to cover in this episode, but before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, anywhere else you might get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website on SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook and Twitter at SoxOn35th. So, jumping right in here, gentlemen, um, we have some we have some off-season grades to give out. Um, this is something that I feel like, uh, now that we're kind of getting near the end of spring training, we kind of have a little bit better of a grasp on how we feel about how the offseason's gone kind of gotten a little bit of taste of Pedro Grafal gotten a little bit of taste of the staff um I especially seen like the staff work with, work with a guy like Oscar Colas I think that's given us a lot more uh an idea of how the players feel about the staff as well as some of the on-field additions so as we kind of get into this segment um basically we broke it down in four different sections um hiring Pedro Grafal Pedro Grafal's staff on-field additions and overall grade um, I gave the Pedro Grafal hiring a B, Pedro Grafal staff an A, on-field additions a C plus, and overall grade a B. Gentlemen, how are you guys feeling about it? So I, I actually kind of feel pretty similar. I gave the hiring of Grafal a B plus, a the hiring of Grafal staff an A minus, the on-field additions a C, and then the overall offseason a C plus. Yeah, I was also on a pretty similar note. I gave the hiring of Grafal a B plus, his staff an A. The on-field addition to C minus, so I was the low person there, and overall grade of C. Also, I was the low person there. Yeah, you know, I hate when we get along this well because it, it, I was going to say just the worst because we 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 do kind of have a lot of similar thoughts about the White Sox, but then like we'll talk when the podcast isn't going, and they're just so varying. But um, let's just jump right into uh, hiring Pedro Grafal. Um, I, I have some opinions on it, but I'll let you guys kind of get out of the way first. What's something about Pedro Grafal, you know, considering you guys both give him, gave the hiring a B plus, what was something that kind of set him apart from other managers in the, uh, in the managerial search? For me, there were two important factors in putting together a grade like this. The first is number one. I really can't give a, as much as I like Pedro Grafal, I can't give a manager an A letter grade without seeing him manage on field, especially a first time manager. Um, so I gave him the highest possible grade I felt comfortable giving. And a lot of that's because of what he's said so far. It's all based on words. And that's kind of the danger of, um, giving off season grades on a new manager. But at the same time, you know, a, a heavy emphasis, emphasis on analytics early on someone who is willing to hold guys accountable and has shown so in some of the roster decisions we've seen, um, over the past day or so. The tone that he's been setting throughout spring, just, again, everything you read is in a positive light, and I think part of that's because he's a new manager, but also part of that is 
He's giving you good things to write about as bloggers, as journalists, as beat writers. And I think those are all important things. Yeah, I'm with you on the fact that you can't give him a higher grade. And and really, so much of it is speculative until we see the games. But at the same time, I think the one word I would use to describe Grafal so far, and just every quote of his, every interview, etc., is refreshing. Because really, in contrast to the last few Sox managers, he's just a lot more open-minded. That's the sense I've gotten so far. And really, just as long as he has the guys playing, you know, motivated, cleaner baseball, and he's trying to instill a bit more analytical knowledge, like with opposing pitchers, for example, that's kind of my baseline, and he seems to check all those boxes. So, so far, I'm pleased with it, but again, we'll see when the games start. Open-minded is a really good word for it, honestly. So I'm I'm kind of like, I'm kind of in the same boat as you guys with a lot of your points. Like, I agree with most everything you guys said. But Jordan, I thought you brought up like the key word of the day, and that's Kool-Aid. And I'm trying really hard not to just chug the White Sox Kool-Aid right now. Um, That's why I gave this hiring a B. Um, As I've said in the past, um, the Ned Yost connection is something I really like. And I like the fact that bringing in a guy like Andrew Benatendi shows that that's somebody that uh, he prioritized because that's somebody that he's worked with. So he could potentially get the best out of a guy like that. And, you know, you guys use the word refreshing. And I do think that's important. But how much of that is just naturally from Tony La Russa fatigue? You know, are we getting into a trap here? Is he saying all the right things and that's kind of selling us because we dealt with Tony La Russa for two years? You know what I mean? Like, it's a situation where, like, in other sports of other fans I follow, um, I always fall in love with the next head coach. I always do because it always seems like they have this different mindset. It almost seems like they come in doing that a little bit on purpose, especially talking to the Chicago media. So while I really do like the Pedro Grafal hiring, like I said, the Ned Yost, I will bring up Ned Yost, Ned Yost so much throughout this managerial like life lifetime because I'm just such a big Ned Yost guy. He's one of my favorite managers of all time. Um, it just sucked that he ended up managing the Royals for as long as he did. But um, I do like this move. I just want to see where this is at 40 games into the season. I think I'll have a lot better of an idea of what Pedro Grafal is actually doing on the field, the difference that he makes. Um, you know, everybody can make great promises during spring training about lineup construction and bullpen construction and starting rotation. Um, but it's all about what we do with it after that. Um, but outside of Pedro Grafal, uh, I think one thing we can agree about is Pedro Grafal's staff. I think we're all pretty big fan of it, especially with the new faces in the building, as well as the recognizable face in the building and Ethan Katz. But uh, how are you guys feeling about Pedro Grafal's staff? Again, I was more willing to go into the A range for experienced coaches. I feel like they knocked this out of the park as best they could. You got a bunch of different guys from a bunch of different places. You you promoted internally a little bit, um, but at the same time, you they really made an effort to go outside the organization, and they hired people with experience. Uh, Griffon brought some of his guys, which is always important to people. You know, he has his guys. That's important for people to see. Um, and at the end of the day, being outside the organization, being experienced, and being highly regarded, Jose Castro from the Braves, for example, um, I feel like they really did knock it out of the park here. Yeah, completely agree. I also gave it an A, or sorry, Jordan gave it an A minus, my bad, but I, but I gave it an A. Um, and I think that one reason I gave it an A is that um, Sam Mondry Cohen was hired, and he was the former assistant GM of the Nationals, which. I know that doesn't scream coaching staff, but he actually has been hired in a coaching staff adjacent role. It's not exactly clear, but basically he's going to be traveling with the White Sox and working with the hitters, which I think is really interesting because Mondry Cohen has been credited with 
more or less creating the Nationals R&D and stats database, which is important because he played a massive role in assembling the World Series team. So I think it's really cool that the White Sox hired him. And I think that even though it's not exactly clear what he'll be doing, the fact that he has this background and that he's really experienced with the sort of more advanced statistical aspects of hitting just adds another very smart hitting mind to the mix in addition to the ones that Jordan mentioned. So just because of their willingness to go outside the organization, I gave them an A. So I, I gave him an A as well, and I think it's actually a good mix of doing a little bit of everything, which kind of makes it seem like they're genuinely just trying to get the best guys. It's not they didn't try to bring in all new faces. They didn't try to keep a bunch of old faces, um, and they didn't just not promote guys because they didn't want to be seen in that light. And the three names that pop into my head first is Charlie Montoyo. I think having a bench coach with managerial experience is a huge, and I, I don't quite understand why managers don't bring in guys like that more often. Um, and especially a guy like Tony Russo, I was a little surprised that we had a bench coach with very little to no managerial experience. You know, I think that's something that uh, is, it, it's always nice as a manager to be able to have that kind of other voice in the room. You know, he's not going to overpower you or anything, but he might be able to give you a little bit of a tip like, hey, what, what are we, what are we doing here? You know what I mean? And I think you look at some of the best managers in the game, they always have a pretty solid bench coach. Um, also, I think, uh, you know, Ethan Katz, it's kind of the obvious one. Um, I really like the work that he's done with Dylan Cease. Um, I think he's going to potentially work that magic with a guy like Michael Kopech. Um, the familiarity, if we are going to get the most out of a guy like Lucas Giolito, Ethan Katz is going to be that guy to be able to do it. Um, and I think he's, uh, I think he's done a good job turning some, uh, potential failed starters into some really good bullpen pieces. You know, you think Ronaldo, Ronaldo Lopez, you look at, uh, Jimmy Lambert. Those are two guys that just kind of pop off off the top of your head who were supposed to be poised to be starters and they've turned into some really good bullpen arms. So I've really enjoyed his work there. And then finally, uh, Chris Johnson, assistant, assistant hitting coach. Um, he was a guy in AAA who, um, I was very high on essentially because of the player's approach that I would see once they came back from AAA or once they, uh, came back from injured list and came back from a rehab assignment, their approach right off the bat was almost considerably better than when they got injured. I don't know if there's a way I can look for a statistic to kind of back that up, but just from my personal eye test looking at it, I always thought it was just significantly better. So those three moves right there, I thought were just monumentally huge to what we were doing. And I was really happy with a lot of that. Um, on field additions, I gave it a C plus. Um, Andrew Benatendi had a lot to do with that, but uh, how are you guys feeling about that? I, I like Benintendi a lot, and we can get into that further a little bit, but I really like the Andrew Benintendi signing. I, I think it shows an analytical mindset in terms of understanding ballpark factors and understanding why he might not be hitting for power over the past couple seasons. Mike Clevenger, I, I think you always have to factor in the fact that there's off-the-field concerns that are going to continue to be there despite whatever was finished off with the allegations. A five-starter with ace upside is a smart gamble to make. Um, again, just evaluating it purely from an on-field perspective. Um, and I think Elvis prevents you from having um, a question mark at second base. Clevenger and Andrews don't really move the needle for me. I, I think the big signing there has been Tendi, and I'm someone who's higher on him. I, I, I like the idea of putting him at the top of their order. Yeah, so I'd give a C- minus for the on-field additions, and it wasn't so much about one addition they did or didn't make. I think in a vacuum, you know, you have three major holes and an outfielder, a starting pitcher, and a second baseman, and they signed three people. So, like, you know, and that's great, you would think. But my issue is that 
if the goal is still World Series contention, I would have just liked a little bit more in terms of quantity, like, you know, getting more certainty out of a fourth outfielder, maybe adding more starting pitching depth. I know these are more luxuries, but at the same time, if if the goal is World Series, I you kind of need to have some luxuries. So overall, I mean, you know, they filled the holes and hopefully people stay healthy and depth doesn't get exposed. But I give a C minus just because I, I wish there was just like one or two more finishing moves. I know Elvis Andrews technically was, but to me, he was the starting second baseman, so it doesn't really count. And I think that's exactly why I just gave it a C. You passed. You needed a outfielder, you needed a second baseman, and you needed a fifth starter. And you signed those three guys. You didn't turn around and sign three relievers. Like You, you, you essentially passed, and you hit the bare minimum. Good enough. Fine. So, so I the reason I brought up Andrew Benatendi on the top of that point, um, and Jordan, I'm glad you jumped on that because I I really do feel the same way about Andrew Benatendi. I think if we don't if we don't hire Pedro Griffal and we sign Andrew Benatendi, I'm probably sitting at a C, maybe even a C minus. But because of that Pedro Griffal connection to Andrew Benatendi, I think that's where that that signing really knocked it out of the park for me, and that's where it really sits at a C plus. Um, I, I guess that's re- like I'm I'm really high on the Benatendi thing. I really think this can be something that can pan out, and especially with the way his contract is set up, like it can be a it can be a steal for for what he gives us. It really can be, and you know it's anytime the White Sox do spend a little bit of money, I always like to see it. Um, what could have made this higher um, was potentially addressing the catcher situation. Um, I know I I know a lot of you guys on 35th know for a fact I was pretty big on Sean Murphy. Um, was really really into that potential of that trade. Um, wish that was something we would have probably been a little bit more active in, but you know, that's not something I could dwell on. But as far as like, a, as far as like in context, a Chicago White Sox final editions grade, you know, cause you always have to take that with a grain of salt. Cause it's, it's the Chicago White Sox, man. There's no other way to put it. Um, I, I think that's where I really sit at a C plus. They get the Chicago White Sox grading curve and all of our grades. I think <laughs> it's at this a point, very, very, there's a curve point. they all sit on and. I don't think the Boston Red Sox or the New York Yankees grade this offseason the same way White Sox fans do. The, the Sox get a curve. <laughs> no. Um, it's funny because I actually talked to a Yankees fan when I was in Milwaukee over the weekend, and he was not an Andrew Banatendi fan. So, no, I don't think Yankees fans would be looking very highly at our uh, offseason right now. But I, I'll, I'll give him that. <laughs> I will, I'll let him have that one because, you know, we all know how that all worked out in New York. Um, as far as overall grade, I don't even know if this adds up in a grammatical sense or, or anything like that. Um, I would say overall B, as I said, uh, White Sox offseason. But how are you guys feeling about it? Like kind of on a grand total type of thing. C was you did the bare minimum. I think the staff pushed up to a C plus for me. Um, that's kind of where I sit. It's another it's another White Sox offseason. <laughs> yeah, I went with the C just. Kind of, kind of similar. I know I gave higher grades on the staff, but I've, to me, the most important thing is what you put on the field. So I kind of weighted that C minus a little higher. But like Duke said, this is not really a science. So, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I'm just looking at it, trying to crunch the numbers in my head where it's like percentage wise, would this pan out like to my overall grade? But I mean, overall grade, I would almost just consider that the vibe grade. This is the vibe I have after like going out of the spring, going out of spring training in an opening day. So, I guess I'll. uh I'll take that for what it is, but again, I do want to finish off that point by saying I hate how closely we aligned with everything like this, but I'm glad we kind of uh, are in the same mindset that this is the Chicago White Sox and these 
these grades have to be kind of graded as such. You know, I feel like everybody kind of, especially in our fan base, wants to hold us with the L.A. Dodgers of the world. And it's like, man, there's just. It'd be nice. Apples, I... apples, oranges, my friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's it's just that simple. But um, kind of moving on here, uh, I, I really like that segment. I thought there was some pretty good stuff in there. Um, and this is one that I'm actually very excited about. So there's obviously a lot of players within the fan base. Some are high, you know, some fans are higher on these players than others. You know, for the most part, you kind of get an idea of how the fan base feels grand total about some guys. Um, some are higher, some are lower. Let's start on the more, uh, let's start on the more positive side of things. Who is, who is somebody, and uh, Nick, I'll let you start with this. Who is somebody that you're a little bit more positive about that maybe the fat rest of the fan base isn't quite on board with as it sits today? So I think there are a few guys I could go with, but the one that stands out the most is Yohan Moncada because to me last year with him, I'm willing to give him the pass that it was mostly injury-based. I mean, of course, his defense was still good, but he hit for very little power and wasn't even getting on base the way that he used to. And I think that if you're willing to look at it that way, it's like the 2019 Moncada that everyone wants. I mean, I obviously want that too. I don't think we can ever bank on getting that back. But the 2021 Moncada, I, I think, was a very good player. I mean, he was a four-win player. He was one of the most valuable third basemen in baseball. I think the people who were unhappy with that season were are unhappy because it wasn't the 2019 power-hitting version, which, which I understand. But at the same time, if you're ranked third in the American League in on-base percentage, like that's objectively good. I don't know how that can be viewed as a bad season when you factor in how good you are defensively as well. So I think that this year I can see him basically returning to that level of player being a, you know, not, not like, you know, MVP caliber carrying the team, but just a very good player, like, you know, all-star caliber maybe because he is getting on base, he's playing good defense, but maybe just he doesn't hit 25 home runs. And, and to me, that's totally fine. Yeah. Um. So I've actually heard a lot of this is kind of a lore going around right now on White Sox Twitter. Do you believe in odd year Yohan Mankata, Nick? <laughs> I mean, I, I do think it's kind of funny because, yeah, 2019 and 2021, by far, his best two seasons. Here we are again in an odd year. I, I, the fact that I think he's going to have a good year, I guess, means that I do believe in it. But at the same time, if he has a good year, then next year, I'm not going to just assume he's going to be bad. So I kind of do. I kind of don't. It's maybe a cop-out answer. No, I'm I'm trying really hard to sell myself on odd year Moncada right now because I've always been a big fan. Uh, Jordan, who are you feeling? Real quick on Moncada, I will say that you know you have to be willing to accept that at a certain point, if ma the majority of his value comes from defense at certain points of the season, that's an okay thing. Like that's what those metrics are there for. And I think as soon as fans kind of get that, I, I guess wrestle with that and understand it, better off they'll be. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, my guy here is Benintendi. I really like this signing. I have been a Benintendi fanboy. It, it is pretty much a man crush at this point uh, since he came into the league. Um, and fr from a baseball perspective, I think he has a good um, balance to this lineup in terms of what he brings to the table. Left-handed hitter, strong outfielder, um, maybe not the best defensively, maybe not the best power hitter left-handed. But at the same time, as I mentioned and alluded to before, you know, if you were looking for the White Sox to make a any decision that that seemed to reflect an openness and an understanding of analytics, the Benintendi signing is that. That is understanding ballpark factors, understanding that not only was Kansas City the worst ballpark for left-handed hitters when it comes from power over the past two seasons, 
But he was hitting in Boston before that, which is also one of the worst ballparks for left-handed hitters and power numbers over the course of those seasons he was there. Guaranteed rate has been among the best ballparks over the course of his career in the major leagues for left-handed power. I'm not saying he's going to turn around and hit 25, 30 home runs, but I'm saying it's a move that you can reasonably expect and hope that 15 to 20 homers more in that range is possible for Benintendi. I, I think he has shown a propensity to put up average walk rates. He's not going to strike out a ton. And if you can add a little bit of that power that may have gotten zapped, partially because of Kauffman Stadium and partially because of a swing change you made because you played in Kauffman Stadium, I think you can get back to some of that hype he had as a player coming out of college. I'm big on him. I really like him. And I don't know. Maybe it's my clouded judgment from years of loving him as a player, but I'm glad he's on the south side. Well, I think I think two things that really stick out to me with Ben Attendee is, like you said, his ability to get on base. You know, outside of all the other positives, I think that's a really big one. Um, as well as his ability to play anywhere in the outfield. I think um, anytime you have an injury and you need a plus defender in the outfield, you know, he can move out of left. He can go play center if Luis Robert ever ends, ends up on the aisle or anything like that. So I do really like the Ben Attendee signing as well. My guy might be a little bit surprising because uh, I feel like he started to get a little bit more goodwill as far as uh, the World Baseball Classic is concerned. You know, uh, White Sox player or White Sox fans getting a chance to see him play a little bit more after kind of not getting to see play for play for a while. But uh, mine has to be Tim Anderson. I think he's a guy who, for whatever reason, you know, people look at his off-field situations, whatever, you know, something that's not totally important to me. Um, and they completely ignore the idea that this is a guy who's been pretty consistent. Uh, he's been really consistent, actually. Been one of uh, one of the most consistent hitters in all of baseball, consistent. Um, he's somebody who really has not had injury issues, like significant injury issues, until this past season. Um, I think this is the first time um, he had a like, severe injury, and he really just got kind of thrown that injury-prone label by a lot of the fan base and a lot of different people really quick. Obviously, he had that snafu with the media and everything like that. That's something I think we kind of touched on in a previous episode. Um, but listen, this is a guy who in the last four years hasn't had an on-base percentage below three um, below 338, um, has not hit below 300. Um, and I know average maybe isn't something that really sticks out to a lot of people, but there's just such this level of consistency with him. You know, he is the straw that stirs the drink at the top of the lineup. You know, there's no other way to deny that he gets this offense going when this offense is firing on all cylinders. It's because Tim Anderson is starting us off hot. And I don't like his ability to get the entire locker room going when he's, when he's in a hot streak or he's just absolutely gashing a pitcher. He's playing confident. Like, like, do we remember that that home run against the Yankees last year? Do you remember, like, the high we were all on with that home run against the Yankees from Tim Anderson? That's right. the type of ability that he has. And even if we want to go back a little bit further, the Field of Dreams game, that was that was probably one of my favorite moments as a White Sox fan, genuinely. And that was just an incredible moment. Um, and I think, I think it's so... I I, di I just don't like that our fan base has just like kind of thrown all of that like under the bus so quickly. You know, Tim Anderson is somebody who just I've always thought encapsulates what you want in the South Side on a like out of a baseball player. This is a guy that just fits into our culture to a T. He embraces being a Chicago White Sox. He embraces the entire community, and 
just happens to be a, a damn good baseball player. You know, I, I don't care. You can say what you want about his errors. He he has his mental lapses, and it's obvious. It, there's no other reason he would have three errors in a game unless it was mental. You know what I mean? Physically, he can do absolutely anything you need him to do. He does it consistently every single year. And um, if he gets a few errors this year, I lose absolutely zero sleep over it because I know what Tim Anderson means to this team, and I know what Tim An- the level of consistency brings to the lineup. So, And I think on I top of all Tim of that, Anderson. you know, w- when you're talking about a team needing a new leader. There's a natural guy to step up. There's a natural guy to be the replacement, be the vocal guy. Uh, maybe that he hasn't been over the past few years. Maybe that he's taken a back seat for over the past couple of years. I, I think when you're looking for a new guy here, here's the guy you want to your point, Duke. No, I really like that. And that's even outside of everything else, you know, leadership, I think is something that's huge. You know, this team, this team has fed off of his energy in the past. And I feel like with a new roster, with a guy like Jose Abreu no longer on the team, that's the guy to kind of really step it up and do it. Um, so now that we've got the positives out of the way, um, and you know, let's get a little feisty. Let's uh, let's get a little froggy. Who is somebody that you guys are a little bit lower on than most? I'm going to start a fight with you, Duke. I'm going to go with uh, I'm going to go with Michael Kopech. And I, I do want to preface this by saying I'm not going to turn around and say I think he should be the closer or I think he should be a reliever. I don't believe that. I believe he's a starter. But there's been a lot of talk, and whether it's on White Sox Twitter or where have you, about, you know, like, he's got the best stuff in the rotation, stuff like that. This is the ace material. I'm just, that's where I'm not there yet. Maybe that's why it's a little bit lower. I don't Maybe it's not necessarily the best answer to the question. I'm just not there yet with Michael Kopech being a top-of-the-rotation guy. There's a lot of talk about, oh, he's got the best stuff. I'm not there yet either. You've got a guy on the staff who had the best pitch in baseball last year, and Dylan sees a slider. With, with the lowest run value in baseball. I'm not there yet on Kopech has the best stuff on the staff. You, I, I can't say that when you've got a guy who literally had the best pitch in baseball last year in Dylan Cease. I think he's a bulldog. I think he's a great mental guy that you want on the mound. At the same time, I am just... I, I need a full season of the Michael Kopech we all think is there before I'm willing to say, you know, this is the guy. This is going to be a future ace. This is going to be someone that's going to head this rotation in the coming years when we're losing Lucas Giolito and Lance Lynn and Mike Clevenger at the end of the season. I'm just not there yet. And I need this season for me as a fan and as an analyst, this season is important to me if, for Michael Kopech. See, I hate that I agree with a lot of the things you said right there. <laughs> I genuinely do. Um, I do have to say, though, you know, I, I really think he has shown what makes what makes me kind of have the argument that he could potentially have the best stuff in the rotation. And, you know, not not to take a shot at your argument, but you sound kind of similar to how people were about Dylan Cease before he popped off. But, Hang on uh, now. I No, I, I always guy. said I'm he a, had I'm the stuff. Guys well. <laughs> no, he always had the stuff. He just couldn't command it. I just don't think I don't think Kopech stuff is on the level of Cease's. Even when it's not going well, you can see it with how sharp Cease's breaking balls break. I just don't think Kopech's slider is there yet. And and when when Kopech or when Cease doesn't have a slider, he's got a hook that he can turn back to. Kopech doesn't have that pitch yet. I just he might end up there because his fastball I do think is better than Cease's because of the arm side run he can get on it. I do think it's better than Cease's. I just don't think when you factor in the off speed part of it yet, 
Um, I'm there yet. Don't you throw cease at me to try and make a counterpoint on my own argument, Duke. Well, listen, and I've I've alluded to it before. We are the Dylan Cease guys because I was on the same amount of getting mm-hmm. just absolutely trashed on Twitter every time I would defend Dylan Cease drowning in a 2019 or 2020 start. So trust me, I'm right there with you. But mm-hmm. all all I'm all I'm gonna say about Michael Kopech, and then Nick, I'll let you go to your point because I don't want to just dive too much in defending Michael Kopech here <laughs> is his high when he is on and his slider is moving. And by the way, his slider this spring, this spring, I think has looked phenomenal. Um, especially in his first start when he's, when he's nailing it down and he can get through those first two innings without a walk. I don't know if there's, I, I there's just so much high end potential there of him just being absolutely dominant. You know, I just brought up what Tim Anderson did against the Yankees. Look what Michael Kopech did against the Yankees last year as well. And he sneaks around with that a lot. Like he messes around with no hitters going into the fifth, sixth inning pretty consistently. He's had a couple of perfect bids as well, kind of messing around. I believe he actually got pulled um, during during a no hitter um, last season. I think that was something that a lot of people went on uh, Tony Larusa about. I could be wrong on that. Maybe it was a one hit, but I know that was a discussion that was had. He he messes around with stuff like that way too much for me to be convinced that he's just not a dom- he, he's not there's not a dominant pitcher in there you know and I think his arm potential has shown that I think that's why he was ended up being kind of the big big piece of that Chris Sale trade you know Yoan Mankata was huge but you know getting Michael Kopech in that trade as well was absolutely massive but I think where I will agree with you um, is we need to see a full season of it. And I think getting a full season, getting Michael Kopech to kind of go through the peaks and valleys throughout the throughout a full season, staying healthy, I think that's where you're going to see his growth. And even if even if he doesn't have like that Dylan Cease last year type season this year, you'll start seeing it going in that direction by the end of the season, in my opinion. But anyway. I agree, and it just has to be show signs of it. Like if he can have a Cease 2021 season, then I feel better about it because now that's tangible process or progress you were able to have that sort of season over the course of 162 then i'd feel bad i'm not asking him to be a cy young next year i'm just saying give me a 2021 dylan cease type year no doubt all right nick go ahead go ahead and take the point i apologize (laughs) no no all good i mean really quick i just want to say the ceiling is definitely there to the point where if you woke up tomorrow and it was like december and you were told that michael kolpak did win cy young this year it wouldn't be like, what? He did what? Like, it would make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the talent is there. So I think at least right. we would agree on that. I do agree that we need to see a full season. But that is not who I picked for my player that I'm lower on. And this is another one that will upset people. But I picked Andrew Benintendi. And before I start, just like with Jordan, I'm not saying, I'm not making the equivalent of the Kopech to closer argument. I'm not saying Benintendi's bad or anything like that. It's just, it's a philosophical thing where when a player, in my opinion, and this you could disagree with us, but my opinion is that when a player has a high floor and a relatively low ceiling, which I think Ben Tenney does, because he's, I mean, the lack of power, even if there is untapped power, still limits the ceiling. I don't like the idea of them repeating what might be an outlier year or a career year, which is not to say that I don't like the contract, because I actually do think that his floor is high enough where that contract will be fine. But it's just a matter of, I can see him having his 2020 one season instead of his 2022 season where he was still like a fine player he had a 105 weighted runs created plus like slightly above league average on offense roughly two wins above replacement but just nothing crazy special that's making your lineup that that's kind of my main thing with him so 
that would just be a bit of an underwhelming um, display. And I do agree that there's untapped potential with his power. I do agree that, I mean, I have to agree that he's really good with runners and scoring position over his career, but in a large sample, it's just a matter of the, I, I hate to throw his name in here, but one of the reasons I didn't like the Nick Madrigal draft pick is because same thing, high, high floor, low ceiling. I Go knew ahead. that's what you were doing when you made that. I was just about to say that. I was like, you are making the Nick Magical argument, aren't you? How dare you? I'm not saying yeah. you're totally wrong, but how dare you? <laughs> and, and, and let me, yeah, Ben Intendi is better than Nick Magical. That, again, is not at all what I'm saying. It's just a similar philosophical mm. thing where I like players with higher ceilings. And if you're depending on him to repeat a quote-unquote high floor year over and over, there's a decent chance that he has one year or two years that are just like, Oh, that's all you gave me for, you know, 15 million a year. But that that's really, I don't, I'm not like a hater or anything. And you know, and that's fair. And I think for me, in terms of trying to justify, you know, what is a worthy $15 million season management attendee, it might be a couple different things. It might be a sort of season like he had last season. It might be one where he sacrifices a little bit of average to add that power back to his game. The value he's going to create might come in a couple different forms. I'm very curious to see, kind of to your point, Nick, what form it ends up coming in. Because if you end up being more of that low floor or high floor, low ceiling guy, now you're trying to figure out, okay, was it worth it, the, the value at the end of the day? So I do get that. Although throwing Nick Magical in there, I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, is he making the Nick Magical argument <laughs> right now? <laughs> Brutal. Um, I. Honestly, just jumping in, I guess, to give my two cents is um, I kind of just remember the prospect that Ben Intendi was coming out of college. And um, I really think if you make a, a growth chart for Andrew Ben Attendi, you have just the most like almost well-rounded, perfect circle just because he does a little bit of everything really well. And I think that's kind of where his growth potential is, is he can just be this all-around baseball player for you. He's not necessarily going to be a guy that's going to hit you 30 home runs, but he can he can hit for power when he wants to. You know what I mean? He's, he's shown that in the past. He showed that in Boston. You know, So he's definitely a guy who can hit with power. He even showed that a little bit in Kansas City. You know, in I think what killed his market was how much hype was going into him getting traded to New York. And if you play, if you don't play well in New York, dude, your market's dead. Like you, no one is going to pay you anything. Dodgers aren't going to touch you. You know what I mean? So like, I really think that kind of killed a lot of his market. And I think that killed a lot of hype um, in, in kind of public opinion of him. But I see a guy who can just do a little bit of everything. And I think those are, those are people who have a lot of high end potential. Um, and I really think Ben Attendee is that type of guy. And they, that's the kind of guy that he was coming out of college. You know, I think that's why he was such a highly touted prospect was, how well he did everything. You know, he was somebody you could put somewhere and you're just always confident that he's going to give you what you need. Um, and it doesn't matter where you put him in the lineup. He'll do what you want him to do in the lineup. So I think that on top of Pedro Grafal is another big part of the Benintendi, why I'm as high on it as I am. Um, I think it's the right guy to work with him. But um, yeah, no, I, I think I think a lot of your concerns are very fair, genuinely. Um, I think... Uh, I think you make a lot of good points as far as that goes. Um, now that I've talked for about, you know, a couple minutes there, now I'm going to say my point. Um, and it's just somebody that I feel like I've been low on for a very long time. And uh, Jordan, I know this one's going to pop your eyes. But, uh... Yeah, you're all just picking fights with me. Seriously. <laughs> well, you know, you're going to go back. So, uh, here we are. Um, I got to go with Aaron Bummer. 
he's a guy who, you know, a bullpen where I just, I love lefties out of the pen and I love power lefties out of the pen, but there's just always been something missing as far as Aaron Bummer goes for me. You know, I feel like he, he has a lot of peaks and valleys. He has times where he's just absolutely a lockdown, a lockdown type guy that you could consider being at the back end of your bullpen. And there are times where he just flat out can't hit a strike zone, you know, and it, it gets very concerning when you're in high leverage situations where like we want to put Aaron Bummer because we've seen top end stuff out of Aaron Bummer in the past and it just does not go well and we hit these points where it's like three four appearances in a row where it doesn't go well and it's what makes it frustrating is like you buy into him when he has like a 10 game stretch where he's just locking it in just absolutely locking it down looking like the the closer or not closer but relief pitcher that you paid him to be that back end type guy and you know I say closer because there was a real discussion before we signed Liam Hendricks that Aaron Bummer was going to be the guy in the closer role but Every time I see Aaron Bummer, I get bummed out that Garrett Crochet is not oh, on the roster. I'm sorry, I had to I had to drop the That's... pun. I'm a little, bit, a little bit of a Batman fan, so I had to drop the pun in there. But I just I I want to see some level of consistency. Jordan, I already know you have about a million analytics up, just ready to <laughs> rip me apart about Aaron Bummer. But I just he's a guy that just every time he's in the game, I just hold my breath. No, I'll, I'll do the uh, Tim Anderson stick talk, whatever the equivalent of stick talk is for a bullpen guy this year. Uh, I'll tag you a few times, Duke. Don't you worry. <laughs> I, I hope <laughs> you do. And really quick before Jordan gives us a bunch of spread, spreadsheets and whatnot, I do want to say that. Uh, You're awful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I look at them too. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah I, exactly. You got them hold <laughs> up too, don't you? Um, just really quick. I do think that Aaron Bummer earlier in his career, he had lower strikeout and walk rates and he was purely just ground ball, ground ball, ground ball. He's still a ground ball pitcher, but his strikeout and walk rates have both, both gone up considerably. And I'm wondering if that was a conscious decision to try to miss more bats, but his control just got way worse when it was never great to begin with, or if it's just something that happened. But either way, I'm curious if that's kind of something you guys want to comment on since Duke was saying that you hold your breath when he's in the game. And I think that's a factor of just the control getting worse over the years. Well, Go ahead, Jordan. I was. I just in games. I sit back, relax. Aaron Bummer's in the game. <laughs> oh I'm gosh. all good. You're just. You're just the worst. Um. <laughs> I. I think the reason. I think what I see, and this is just me taking the whole Aaron Bummer idea out of the equation. This is player A for me, and I'm just looking at him pitch. I. He just. It's. It's mental with him. He genuinely thinks a little bit too much when he misses pitches. Like if he misses a pitch or two, or he misses his spot early in the count. Even even if he gets ahead in the count and say he's 0-2 and he goes 1-2 on a pitch that he was actually trying to kind of get him to sneak on, it's like immediately his control just starts getting a little shaky. He starts trying to get on the corners a little bit too much where, you know, as a reliever, there are certain points where you just kind of got to throw that third strike. You know what I mean? And, like, I understand wanting to play the count, but when you when you struggle with control later in counts, that's really where you fall into trouble. And we see it happen all the time with, with relievers. Um, if you're a starting pitcher and you're kind of trying to work or work like the second or third time through this guy, it's a little bit different trying to be crafty. But if you're trying to get a guy out on limited pitches or trying to at least get a guy to ground out, you have to you have to take your shot on a pitch. And sometimes it feels like if he misses a if he if he misses two spots on his first on his first batter, that's that's kind of a bad sign. If he strikes out his first batter, he's usually considerably better on the next two guys that he faces. But if he struggles to hit his spot, if he struggles to get that strikeout pitch, or if he starts ahead and then falls behind and wa- ends up walking a guy, it's it's all downhill. That's that's the way I see Aaron Bummer, and I think it's something you can fix. I think it's anytime it's mental, it's something you can fix. It's never anything with his arm talent. 
Um, but that's just my opinion on the whole situation. It's a Dylan Cease type argument. Trust your stuff. Let, let your stuff work in the zone. It's unhittable when it's located well and located within the zone. It's a, it's a very Dylan Cease type argument. Yeah, um, and I think, Nick, to your point, you know, the game has trended towards, you know, you can give up a little bit on your control if you strike out more guys. Um, I am curious to kind of see what a new staff brings for Aaron Bummer and what a new staff thinks about the, the trend and what Aaron Bummer has done. And maybe we see a little bit back towards um, that pitch contract ground ball pitcher. Um, I, I am very curious to see what his season holds. All right. Well, now that we've argued, now that we've uh, gotten that all out of the way, let's get to team awards. Let's get let's get to the real meat and potatoes here. Let's uh, let's do everything that uh, everyone will throw in our faces at some point later in the season. <laughs> um, so, as far as team awards, we were pretty uh, pretty natural. MVP, Cy Young, Rookie of the Year, Top Reliever, Top Defender, blah 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 blah. You know all the great stuff. I, everything everybody wants to hear. So I went with Aloy Jimenez as my MVP. Anybody who's known me longer than about a week knows how much I love Loy Jimenez. That is my guy. Um, I have a Jersey hanging up in there for Loy Jimenez. When Loy Jimenez got injured, I hung up red gloves on my wall. Um, that's my guy. I actually have red batting gloves in slow pitch softball because of Loy Jimenez. So yes, very much a Loy Jimenez guy. My Cy Young, Michael Kopech. We already talked about Michael Kopech. I don't need to go too nuts there. Rookie of the year. And this is, this is going to be a, a freaking bombshell of a rookie of the year prediction, but Oscar Colas, um, Kendall Graveman, I believe will be the top reliever, although I believe there's, that's going to be a bit of a nice little competition. Cause I think we're going to get some good stuff out of the bullpen this year and uh top defender just to go against some of your guys' thoughts. I went Andrew Benintendi. I like that oh. one. I like, I like the idea of Benintendi being the best. Of I will say though, you know, if you look at defensive metrics, if Andrew Benintendi ends up being the best defender, it's either like, wow, he made some great changes, or wow, something went really wrong. However, <laughs> I love the prediction. I am not going to sit here and slander Benintendi. Um, on my end, I went MVP with Andrew Vaughn. I went back and forth on this one. I said, you know what? Let's have the guy who everyone needs to be the next Jose Abreu be a Jose Abreu type player. Come in, earn your role, earn your spot take first base by the reins and be the next one in the line of greats all the way from Frank Thomas through Jose Abreu over at first base. The size cease train is rolling. Uh, for me, I, it, I jumped between Giolito and cease here. I also considered Lance Lynn, um, but size cease all the way. Let, let's, let, let's get the award this time. Rookie of the year. No surprise. Oscar Colas, I think not only by default based on the roster, but also, I think he's going to make Rookie of the Year discussions for the American League legitimate with him. Top reliever, I went with Joe Kelly. Uh, it's someone where it's a, it's a stuff argument and really can't get worse than last year, but also if you consider it purely from a stuff standpoint, purely from the fact that we're going to need a guy to step up, I like him. Top defender, I cheated Luis Robert. I, I think that's a fair baseline to go with. I went enough with the hot takes on Vaughn and Kelly. I decided I needed to get one of these right. So <laughs> those, those, those are interesting. I think that there's definitely a good argument to be made for a lot of them. For MVP, I went with Duke's choice of Aloy Jimenez as well. I just think that typically for MVP, I'd want somebody who also plays good defense, but he's just so good on offense that I can see him having like a Jordan Alvarez kind of year if he stays healthy, which would just be fantastic. <laughs> I love that comparison. Um, That's a comparison I use all the time keep going Nick yep. I'm loving it <laughs> great uh so yeah that, that's my pick for MVP for Scion I picked Giolito I think that Cease I could definitely see being the favorite I just picked Giolito because in the contract year 
if he reclaims some of that magic, it's easy for me to see him just having like a five or six one year, becoming an all star again, et cetera. Um, rookie of the year, no need to discuss. It's Colas. Who else is going to be like a reliever or someone? <laughs> I'm not, not going to be that edgy there. Um, for best reliever, I picked Ronaldo Lopez because, in my opinion, he was the second best reliever last year behind Liam Hendricks, who obviously will miss at least part of the season. And this year, I think that with the newer, sharper slider, Lopez could be like a legitimately dominant closer if he gets chances to close and he might get a pretty good free agent contract um, come come winter if he has the year I think he'll have. And then finally for top defender, I picked um, Yohan Moncada just because I, I almost went with Robert, but I just feel like Moncada is a more consistently good defender than Robert, and I hope that changes, meaning I hope Robert gets more consistent. But for now, I had to go with Yohan. Yeah, so super quick thoughts. Joe Kelly, really like that prediction. I think Joe Kelly is just so freaking due, plus couldn't be any better of a guy. Um, Gilito, good point with the contract year. I think he's a guy who's as motivated as you're possibly going to be. Ronaldo Lopez, always love the idea of him being a back-end part of the rotation. I like the fact that he brought up him being potentially closer. And Yohan Mankata, defender, absolutely. It's impossible to deny what Yohan is as a defender at this point. So I think I think it's a very real chance that that ends up uh, panning out. Uh, and don't... I, I, saw, I saw Luis Robert on yours, Jordan, and I just really did not want to steal that. But, like... <laughs> I'll take the chance on Andrew Benintendi. Like I, I I'm going to be following his defensive metrics very closely this year. Benintendi or uh, Robert might make Benintendi a better outfielder. Having him in center field is a, is a huge thing uh, for both corner outfielders. On top of that, the only other thing I'll say is don't let my choice of Dylan Cease uh, uh, mislead you. I am very much still on the geo hype train. I can't wait for the season for Giolito. Outstanding. All right, so super quick, guys. Um, I want a final record prediction and a hot take. I will go ahead and start just to get us going. Um, I think as far as final prediction is record, I think we will go 93 and 69. I actually said 93 wins when I, uh, joined a radio show last, last week or two weeks ago. I believe that was my prediction was 93 wins. Um, AL central champions. Um, I like to be a positive person, so I'm not going to guess when we're going to lose in the playoffs or that we even will lose in the playoffs. <laughs> but I, I'm pretty, pretty, if things go right, 9369, nice. Uh, AL Central champions, really happy with that. And as far as my hot take, um, Aloy Jimenez hitting at least 280, 45 home runs, and 100 plus RBIs. Let's freaking ride, baby. 45. That's, that would be nice. Hot, saying 45 for any guy is a hot take. And, but the thing is, he can achieve that by far. Um, I went with 90 and 72 for the record. Maybe it's still the spring training Kool-Aid. I think this is a team that can win 90 games. Um, I said first in the AL Central. I think maybe an, an ALCS appearance would be nice. I think they could find a way to get there this year. I think you still have to compete with the fact that they're probably not the best team in the American League and that will more than likely than not catch them. Um, I don't like saying they're going to lose, but I, I, I wouldn't be mad if they won at all. Don't. I'll gladly be wrong on my prediction on this one um, <laughs> in case that wasn't clear. And then uh, for my hot take, I said Cease, Lynn, and Giolito would all finish in the top 10 for AL Cy Young. I almost threw Clevenger in here, but I thought three was more likely than four. Um, I'm going to say all three of those guys, top 10 Cy Young. I, that, is, that is a gasoline take. I tell you, if that ends up happening, we are the team just by default is an absolute freaking business, so. 
Yeah, yeah. I like that. That, I like that's that like 2021 with uh, Julito Lynn Rodon, like having a three-headed monster there. And that's the only reason I said I'm like, it is feasible. It's a hot take, but it's feasible because a team has done this recently for the White Sox. Good, yeah, good problem to have. Nick, Nick, what are you feeling, buddy? Yeah, so I'm a bit more negative here, although I'm still taking the over on wind, so I don't know if you can really call it negative. I have them at 86 and 76, which I have them at second place in the AL Central. I think the Twins, honestly, I'm more afraid of than the Guardians this year. Love the Guardians pitching, don't love their offense at all. Um, whereas the Twins, I know their rotation is a bunch of number two and three starters, but I don't really see that as a bad thing in the regular season. I think that's more of a bad thing in the playoffs. So I have it being a really you know, close season. I don't think the Twins are like a 100-win team or anything. I think it'll come down to the last week or two um, for, for the White Sox. But, I mean, I do that they make the playoffs. I'm just trying to avoid uh, the, the Kool-Aid like we've been saying. And as for my hot take, I, I'm going to give two quick ones just because one is very negative. I think that Elvis Andrews will be worse than Romy Gonzalez or even Lenin Sosa and that he'll lose his starting job by mid-June. Really quick, my reasoning is, he slugged 404 with the White Sox last year. Andrews did, but his expected slugging was 360. His um, home run per fly ball rate was 19.1%, which is absurd because his career average is 6%. So basically, he had a lot of fluky home runs is what that means, and I don't really see that sustaining. Not that it means he'll automatically be bad, but just I don't think he'll be nearly as good as he was with the White Sox last year. And, of course, the White Sox aren't counting on that sustaining, which is which is fine, but at the same time, I wanted to, to bring it up. He's 34 years old. He started his career at major league career at 20. So he's just the type. He has a lot of mileage on his body. You never know when the wheels could fall off. Um, but my good um, hot take is that Oscar Colas wins AL Rookie of the Year because not just will he hit for a lot of power, but I actually think he's a dark horse to be one of the best defenders on the team. So that's my my good prediction. Nice to throw some positivity in there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I. <laughs> It, the spring training Kool-Aid is very real. I will not deny that. I, I think once we get a couple weeks of games under our belts, we might be striking different tones on these podcasts. Hopefully not, but we could be. <laughs> yeah, so uh, letter to the editor, podcast uh, podcast name, Jerry Reinsdorf's Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, with the Elvis Andrews thing, I, I have a hard time even disagreeing with that, Nick, because... He really was, it was just kind of the perfect storm with him coming in, um, you know, and we were just drowning at the second base position at that point that really anybody with any sort of major league career up to that point would have probably looked better. Like, I'm talking like mid-2010s, Jimmy Rollins would have looked better at second base than what we were rolling out there last year. So, um, but I will give Elvis this. During the free agency period, he got caught in a crowd. He decided he couldn't walk out. Because he loved the South Side too much, baby. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> All right, um, we gotta go. I think that's a good spot to end it on. I just I had to get that Elvis Andrews pot in there. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, that is oh all we have this God. week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the pod on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere else you get a pod, uh, anywhere else you get your podcast. Also be sure if you're listening on YouTube to hit the like button, subscribe. Um, if you want to be notified anytime a new episode comes up, be sure to go to the subscribe tab, hit the little bell and you will get an automatic notification on your phone every single time. It also helps us a ton, um, helps us get out there a little bit more. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook and Twitter at SoxOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We will be next week. We will be, we will be back next week. 
as we inch closer to the beginning of our season. Thank you, and go Sox. 162-0, go Sox. 86-76, just kidding. You're awful. Go, go Sox, though. Chug, 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 chug. <laughs> 